0: personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. <clears> at <throat> and connects an O to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Connecting changes everything. ATT.
2: Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back to finish out our discussion of the invention in the early days of the motion picture. Now, last time I think should have been the episode where we – talked with Scott Benjamin about the murder mystery, or the maybe murder mystery, the disappearance mystery. Yes. Of Louis Le Prince, the person who actually did shoot, invent a film camera and shot movies before anybody, before... Lumiere Brothers before Edison and and his team. Uh, But in the episode before that, we talked about the earliest commercially viable motion picture technologies. So by the mid-1890s, you had the flourishing of Thomas Edison and W.K.L. Dixon's kinematograph and kinematoscope in America, which made roughly 15 to 16 second movies that you could watch by sticking your head in a viewfinder in a cabinet. (laughs) Um, uh, again, I, I love the image. Like you just got your face down in the cabinet and somebody walks up behind you and puts the kick me sign on or whatever happens in these parlors. I'm sure it was a rowdy scene. And then around the same time, you've also got the cinematograph of the Lumiere brothers in France, which projected films on a wall. And this is a kind of different thing because it allowed this communal viewing experience, which is uh, – last time we talked about how we think this is sort of important both culturally and economically, that you can show films for a for a big audience all at the same time.
1: Yeah, and and I think that when we look at the history of film viewing and film technology, we see that uh, that push and pull between the communal – Experience and the individual experience, whether it's the communal experience of of the uh, the Lumiere brothers' uh, invention or movie houses, or it's go, or places where we go back towards the the individual experience, such as um, suddenly being able to watch films at home on television or yeah. watch films on a VCR um you know, other home media advancements. Right down to our our modern use of smartphones where you can you can just crawl underneath a blanket and watch whatever you want with your headphones in. And it's you know you're you're all but just shoving the screen directly into your brain.
0: Uh-huh. And, I, I do think I would bet that film historians have some interesting thoughts about how the changes in technology, especially like home video, changed the art of film itself.
1: Yeah yeah I mean, it's had major uh, certainly there, I've, I've read some about its effects, say, on uh, the the adult cinema industry, you know, right where they're you know obvious clearly there. yeah clearly you know obvious influences of the technology on on that uh, genre. But I was thinking just the other night about uh, a different uh, avenue of of film enjoyment, uh, that being riffing.
0: Oh, yes. So we're, of course, both big fans of Mystery Science Theater 3000. If you've never seen it, it's – well, you've probably seen images of it. It's the old TV show where they would – it was a sci-fi comedy premise where they would take old movies that were generally very bad and poorly made. And you'd have hosts who made jokes about the film as you watched. You'd see little silhouettes bobbing in front of the screen. A human and two robots forced to watch bad movies. And in order
1: to survive the experience, they riff on them. They make jokes. They talk back to the screen. Um, You know, all all the – this sort of uh, you know humorous shenanigans created by uh, the great uh, Joel Hodgson.
0: Yeah, but the, this is of course turned into a wider genre than just the show Mystery Science Theater 3000 that's been off the air for you know, 20 years or whatever. Well,
1: it's back but, on Netflix.
0: Well, that's true. Yes. Uh, but so it was off the air for a long time but the the tradition continued. I think it inspired a sort of style of media presentation and it wasn't the only one. I mean there's also you were talking before we uh, went on Mike today about this other phenomenon of not people talking during the movie, but the the TV movie host. What, what yeah. do you call that?
1: Oh, like a daytime horror host. Yeah, uh, so like Grandpa Munster hosting. Uh, movies back uh, back in the 90s on, like, uh, the Turner channels. Or Elvira. Elvira, or Joe Bob Briggs, Monster Vision, uh-huh. uh, where they're not chatting during the movie, but there are these bumper segments where they're saying, hey, how about that film you just watched? How about those, how about that scene with that monster? And they, maybe they crack a few jokes.
0: Right, so even if you're at home alone watching the movie, it's kind of like when you go out to the movies with your friends, and if it's a bad movie, you lean over next to each other and make jokes about what you're watching.
1: Yeah, so I wondered to. To what extent like, these are re- reactions to, to these, uh, these different technological advancements where movie viewing has leaned away from the communal towards the individual experience, but then we compensate for that through this pseudo-communal experience of riffing or the host uh, speaking to you about the film. And then later on, when we get more into the DVD age, you, of course, have commentary tracks, oh, yeah. which I think uh, the better commentary tracks, uh, I'm thinking of particularly like the John Carp- Carpenter and Kurt Russell commentaries, the uh, director's oh, yeah. commentary tracks, you know, where it's it's like you're hanging out in the room
0: with them, uh-huh. listening
1: to them. You're watching the film with them you know, or to
0: a certain extent. Listening to any Arnold Schwarzenegger commentary track where well. he just explains what's <laughs> happening in the scene and it's yeah. uh in total recall the uh, the unbelievable distortion of the face. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, even that is you know, sort of a communal experience. It's like you're you're watching the film with Arnold. Uh-huh. Uh so anyway, that's it. I haven't researched that to see if anybody else has has given, uh, you know, a lot more serious and structured thought uh to to the, the nature of riffing and why it's important, but uh yeah, it came to mind uh, Thinking about uh, the way the technology influences our experience.
0: Yeah, I have a hunch that you're exactly right, that there is this push and pull and that we want, you know, we want to be able to have privacy, uh, privacy bound experiences, you know, within our own boundaries, within uh, our own uh you know, the convenience of being able to do it at home whenever we want mm-hmm. to watch a movie or something. But also there's there's part of us that cries out for that kind of instant reaction, you know, wanting to be able to lean over to the person next to you and talk about what you're seeing.
1: Right. Like, And a, a counter to that would, of course, be some of these examples um uh, that you've seen of uh, movie theater innovations designed to limit the communal experience, where mm-hmm. there are
0: like dividers next to your head, uh-huh. uh, that sort of thing. Well, I mean, I, I guess it's it's also going to be annoying if you're just trying to pay attention to the movie and the people right in front of you are having a conversation about whatever.
1: Yeah, well, it's the human experience as a whole, right? We mm-hmm. want to be alone, but we want to
0: we want to be surrounded <laughs> by people and if we're, and we have... we have Whichever we, we are, we want the other yeah, one. Yeah, exactly. The grass <laughs> is always a little greener, right? But uh, we, so we should come back to the early days of film and Pick up on this technological yes. journey. Uh, okay, so yeah, so we had the the Edison uh, and Dixon kinematograph and kinematoscope, and then you had the Lumiere brothers with their cinematograph. And these established uh, some slightly different early traditions of films. And one of the things we talked about before is that there weren't already films waiting to be shown. So the people who invented these camera and projector technologies had to make their own films to go in them. They had to be not only inventors of the technology but media producers – So Edison and Dixon's early films were usually like short recordings of things that would be kind of like circus acts or vaudeville performances. Here's the strongman. Here's a dancer or acrobats or something quick and interesting to look at that would be interesting without sound and last about 15 seconds because that's how long the films could be based on the limitations of their technology. The Lumiere brothers created these short documentaries of real life with scenes like a train approaching the camera or – I was reading about one that's just five men diving off of a jetty and bathing in the sea. There's one that's got a bunch of photographers getting off of a riverboat for a photography conference in (laughs) Lyon. It's riveting stuff. (laughs) But people were really into it. Mm Yeah, I mean, it
1: just it's the, the the magic of seeing the moving picture without uh, with, with, without
0: living in an age of just ubiquitous uh, moving pictures like we have today. Exactly, uh, and so the Lumiere. Oh, but the Lumiere brothers also created at least one fictional story that we mentioned in that previous episode, the classic "The Sprinkler Sprinkled." Yes, which is yeah, this was one of
1: the first ten films that they that they un- unleashed, and it is clearly a, a humorous little fiction piece where a gardener's uh, hose is a uh, is stepped on by a child and then of mm. course he does the natural thing right the the nice comedic uh, clown choice and looks down the hose and mm-hmm. then that's when the water squirts him in the face
0: i actually watched it today and not only does he get squirted in the face then he chases down the child and beats the child <laughs> savagely that's how it ends you know
1: the, the, it was a different different t- type of humor
0: <laughs> back in those days uh, if only we could have had the sprinkler sprinkled cinematic universe where they come back and 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 that would be explored in a later film but but you know, take the
1: beating aside. It is mm-hmm. exactly the, the type of humor that has continued to be an important part of motion pictures, uh, like right up until today.
0: Oh, of course, yeah. I mean, slapstick humor is still a very cheap way to make a movie that can make a lot of money. Yes. Uh, but by the mid 1890s, films we we should say were still mostly something like a curiosity and a technological spectacle, and less like a fundamental medium for stories in mass culture the way they are in our culture today. So what changed in between? You know, how do we get from that point to this point? One thing that I think is really important along that journey is that, of course, there were plenty of technological upgrades that came along to improve what people could do with motion picture filming and projection early on. But the one innovation that I think might be most important early on is something that is usually called the Latham Loop. Now – We've talked before about how early films were less than a minute long, right? There there were technical reasons for this. It wasn't an artistic choice. One of the technical reasons was the strains put on recording media. So these early films were shot on celluloid film strip – And celluloid film was good. It was more durable than the flimsy paper film of the past, but still it had its limits. And one was this. The more film you've got coiled up on a roll and, you know, you're pulling on it, the harder it is to pull to feed along past the shutter. Like you can sort of imagine the physics of this, right? You know, trying to pull tape off of a huge roll and pull it really fast. And the way film cameras and projectors worked at the time was to grab the film along these perforated holes along the side. So if you've seen film before, you know, you see these sprocket holes along the side of it. That's so the the latch uh, or the lever can grab the film, advance it exactly one frame in front of the shutter, and then move it along another frame after that. Uh, And so if you tried to record or project a really long piece of motion picture, you would inevitably end up tearing it in the process, often by ripping through the sprocket holes. As you tried to advance the film. And this actually put an artistic limit on the medium. Uh, I was reading a 1999 article for the American Society of Cinematographers by the film uh, filmographer and film historian David Samuelson. And Samuelson writes that in the 1890s, the problem with the tension on celluloid film meant that you couldn't pull the, more than maybe like 100 feet or so, about 30 meters of film through the camera or projector without tearing it. And this limited films to roughly two minutes runtime. Now, in our brains, that we're thinking like, how do you tell the story of RoboCop in two minutes? <laughs> you, this is a robocop world. You can't have it. Uh, but But it was actually a different question that led to the defeat of this technological hurdle. And that question was a more... Uh, I don't know, kind of maybe more mercenary economic one, but maybe that's just me saying that because I'm not a big big sports fan. The question was, how do you shoot and play back an entire boxing match? Oh. Now, it's funny that, again, this reveals how little uh, interest I have in sports that I didn't even think about the idea of filming and exhibiting sports matches as like a major early use of film. But, of course, this is going to be big money, right? Yeah, I mean, I was mainly thinking about the um – you know, the artistic possibilities here and maybe to
1: a certain extent the journalistic uh, uh, possibilities. But then again, journalism would
0: cover sports as well. There would be an interest in capturing what occurred. Exactly. So there was a family company run by an American named Woodville Latham and his sons, and they wanted to pioneer this process to make money off of exhibiting boxing matches after they'd happened. So the idea was you filmed the fight You screen it later and you charge admission. And obviously most boxing matches would have been too long. They would tear the film because they're going to need more than 100 feet there. So the answer is something called a film loop or a latham loop. And this invention essentially used wheels to spool out a kind of short slackened loop of film. Ahead of the camera or projector shutter so that when the lever grabs the film to pull it down, rapidly advance it past the shutter frame by frame, it wouldn't be pulling tight on the entire roll of film. It'd just be pulling down from this sort of slackened loop of film right above it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So according to Samuelson – Though Woodville Latham gets the name credit for this invention, the Latham Loop, a sworn statement by our old friend W.K.L. Dixon, who, remember, invented Edison's kinetograph, uh, indicated that the invention was actually the work of a guy named Eugene Lost, who was otherwise known for inventing the idoloscope, which was a wide film projector. And also, as a side note, Samuelson notes that uh, years later, in 1911, Lost would also travel to America to, quote, give the first demonstration there of a combined sound-on-film recording and reproduction system, though his method was not uh, ever successfully commercialized. And actually, synchronized sound didn't become mainstream in films until the late 1920s. So there was a ways to go before that became big. Lost,
1: by the way, is spelled L-A-U-S-T-E.
0: Yeah, maybe that's lost A, or maybe Lustay. I, I don't know. Either way, he was quite the inventor. Yeah, totally. Double innovator here. The Latham Loop was a big deal in addition to this, this later uncommercialized Uh, sound on film process. Uh, And the Latham Loop was such a big deal that Samuelson writes about it, quote, for filmmakers of the time, it was as big a breakthrough as anything that has happened since. And, Think about it again. This is so important because this is what makes it possible to have long films. Without it, we couldn't have long films.
1: Right now, obviously, I mean, obviously, prior to this technology, we we had all these other storytelling mediums that were long form.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We had books. We had we had plays, especially. Uh, but uh, but be, but clearly, like the medium was not ready to receive. Uh, those longer form uh, stories yet. Yeah. And this allowed them to receive those forms.
0: Exactly. And I think this is one reason early on you you wouldn't have had people quite yet thinking, yes, this, you know, the, the film will become the medium for visual novels, that right. we'll adapt a novel for film.
1: It, it would be like saying, look at postage stamps. Think of the stories we can tell with postage stamps. You'd yeah, be I, like, no, you can't. It's just not that big. You can't put <laughs> Macbeth on a postage stamp. But then suddenly, it's like, hey, we just figured out a, a way that makes the stamps so much bigger. <laughs> And then suddenly the sky's the limit.
0: Yeah. And so uh, there's another piece I read emphasizing the importance of the loop that was pretty interesting. It's an article I found in The Atlantic in 2017 by Henry Giardina, though originally it was from an essay series called Object Lessons. And its title is The Camera Technology That Turned Films Into Stories. I was talking about the Latham loop there. Uh, and it, so it notes several things. Of course, uh, I wanted to know what's the deal with this boxing match that the Lathams were into. Well, mm-hmm. it's got the deets on that. In May of 1895, the Latham family successfully screened a boxing match in New York City. And the boxers were Charles Barnett and somebody named Young Griffo. Ooh. So I'm wondering, is this the inspiration of the character in A Song of Ice and Fire? There's a Young Griffo? You don't remember Young Griff? He's in the books, but not the show. Mm, I don't remember Young Griff. Oh, yeah. Well, he's a Young Griff. (laughs) I don't know who won the fight, by the way. I'm pulling for Young Griffo, though. Uh, But so this invention obviously wasn't just for boxing. The film loop or the Latham loop made longer motion pictures possible, and we all know the stuff that came along with that, Uh, though uh, Giardina's article is also interesting in documenting the obsessive tactics that thomas edison pursued in order to hinder the early production of independent films and extract every dime he could out of anybody trying to make a movie mostly through you know uh, obnoxious patent claims mm-hmm. like you try to patent every part of the process and and if somebody's doing it he's going to be making money on it and remember early on Films were not thought of yet as primarily as art or in terms of copyright law. They were technology primarily framed in terms of patent law.
1: So ultimately, I mean, all these films that are being produced, like they're still nothing but – um, proof for the technology at this point. Like, they, like the films have not really taken on a life of their own.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, audiences were enjoying them, but mm-hmm. it, I, it, I don't think they thought of films yet the way we think of films is like, this is another medium. It's like, you know, it's like the written word. You know? right. We think of film as being something like that. And uh, before we move on, I just have to mention also that uh, in this uh, Giardina piece, it, it talks about how it's been alleged that Edison didn't just use patent harassment uh, on, on people who were trying to make films at the around the turn of the 20th century. Uh, it's also been alleged that he used sheer muscle and intimidation to control the early film industry. And the author here talks about an interview between Peter Bogdanovich, the, uh, you know, the 1970s filmmaker, mm-hmm. and, uh, and an early film director who was working in the earliest days named Alan Dwan, who said that, uh, quote, Edison sent gangsters across the country to follow them when they, when they went west and that the gang Gangsters would shoot at their cameras. Oh. Quote: Most companies only had one. Sometimes they'd wait until a fellow was cleaning the camera and take a shot at it. Anything to destroy it. Oh. Uh, so I don't know if that story is accurate, but uh wow, it does seem like another tally in the Edison as villain column.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. The idea that you—I mean, there's so much. Um, I mean. It, to any film that gets made, it's kind of a miracle, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so much work that goes into it, and, and th- in these days, that was that was still the case as well. Yeah. But on top of that, you're going to have Edison's gangsters allegedly <laughs> showing up and uh, and potentially messing with your camera. That's awful.
0: Yeah. So whether or not that story is true, of course, Edison couldn't stop. You know, independent films entirely. Films continued to develop in France and elsewhere. And then even in the United States, filmmakers moved west and spread out all over the place and Edison's power waned. So he just – he couldn't put a lid on all of it. So I think it's clear that the film loop uh, or the Latham loop was a crucial invention enabling the transformation of motion picture from just a technological spectacle into a mainstream storytelling medium and an art form. Like it allowed the creation of longer films and it made possible, uh, new you know, things that you could do with film editing. Now, we'll have to ask the question in a minute – who who picked up on this opportunity? Like who were the artists who, who realized I can make art? I can tell stories with this new medium. Uh, you know, who, who took advantage of the technology? But also I was just wondering first about a question about film history uh, as an example of something that can be generalized. How does a new media technology come to be perceived in culture – As a legitimate art form because I remember – maybe you weren't aware of this, but I remember some debate in the mid to late 2000s where people would go back and forth about whether or not video games can ever be considered art. Hmm. And uh, I don't – maybe people still have that debate today. I I would say that to me – You know, most video games to me don't seem like things that I'd really think of as art, but I don't have any problem at all with the idea that they potentially can be, and some probably are. And you're talking about
1: the piece itself being in its entirety a work of art, not merely like encompassing nice production design.
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, certainly video games today, uh, you know, a lot of them have some beautiful designs in them that you would think of as visual art. So the question is, once it incorporates gameplay mechanics and all that kind of stuff, like does does it lose some artistic quality then? I, I don't know. I mean pe- people have to work that out among themselves. But I also think about the same thing with uh, virtual reality. Can you just take a virtual reality environment and say, you know, uh, this is art? I mean it seems to me that virtual reality is sort of – in a space kind of like the films of the first decade of films we're in, you know, where it's still maybe like a question of like, is this just sort of a new technology and a spectacle that makes use of it?
1: Well, I think a lot of it comes down to yeah, how you're utilizing the new medium because so we mentioned plays earlier. Uh, I think mm-hmm. a lot of us. I don't know about all of us, but I've certainly seen my share of filmed plays, especially when I was like taking Shakespeare courses in college. Mm-hmm. And so, and many of them were very good because, um, in many cases, it is a film of a, a wonderful performance. Mm-hmm. But if it's if the camera is not moving or it's barely moving, you know, uh, it, it's it's not the same as watching a film. It's not using right. all of the the the, the tricks uh, available to the filmmaker. Uh, so it's it's a very difficult, I think, to make an argument that a filmed play is a good film, uh, even if it is a great play. Uh, likewise, when you're looking at let's say virtual reality or a video game, it's like is the video game just giving me some nice visuals and I'm having some fun playing it, or is it doing something with gaming itself? They're it doing mm-hmm. something with the way that I interact with it that it is that is refreshing and and unique. Uh, and likewise with the virtual reality.
0: Are the mechanics of the invention or the technology integral to what the art is or how the art works in the same way that they are with films?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: I mean, for example, film, uh, the simplest thing you can think of, a a film uh, can use an edit to make a point. You know, a film can like jump cut between two things to cause you to have a connection between them in your mind. And that's a thing that's sort of unique to film as a medium, right? Absolutely, yeah. So I guess the question is, are there things similar in games, in virtual reality, where the mechanics of it, the sort of the physical characteristics of the medium, are used to do things that other media don't do in service of uh, an artistic design?
1: Yeah, well, you know, in, in gaming, I'm thinking the examples would be games that kind of lean into trying to create the feeling of watching a motion picture, mm-hmm. but... Uh, but but, but feels that way, you know what I'm saying? Like it uh-huh. feels like, oh, this is this is almost like watching a movie. I'm almost achieving something, but i'm I'm not you know fully immersed in the experience. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're being, you know, hit on the head with a bunch of cutscenes. Yeah, and then in between the cutscenes, there's more traditional video game like maneuvers. But then uh, a game like, well, uh, Soma comes to mind is a recent game that yeah. uh, the, the, that we both played. It's a you know horror, uh, sci-fi horror sci-fi game. game. And like, that game felt like, uh, it, as I recall, it, it was not heavy on, on cut scenes. You were controlling the elements for the most part. Mm-hmm. And, and the way that you interacted with elements uh, helped tell the story of your experience. I
0: agree. Uh, yeah, I think that's a very good candidate for that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, as opposed to, say, many, say, fighting games or shooting games where you're just doing the fighting or the shooting. And then there are moments that come along where, like, hey— uh, I'm here to tell you what the narrative is and how the story is progressing, and then you move back to the the thing you were doing. Right. If I know anything, it's that twisted metal is art. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I was thinking about the the, the, the most recent, say, Mortal Kombat game as an Oh, of you're a fan
0: of those, right?
1: Yeah, but you know, I, you know, I would never say that. Mortal I didn't mean
0: that in a derogatory. No, no, no. Way. Uh,
1: it's it's not a game that I would say is art. Uh-huh. though it combined it it clearly it was built on the talents of of numerous uh, you know very accomplished artists mm-hmm. there's a lot of cool art in the game and then there is a certain amount of storytelling that takes place in the game but the core game experience is still not a narrative
0: it is a fight. yeah i mean to a certain extent a fight is a narrative but you know what i mean then again if we're starting to set a high bar about what counts as art and what doesn't and most films probably don't count either i mean who, <laughs> who knows it, I'm sorry, I guess this is a pretentious discussion, and it's my fault because I started it. I mean, we're not the council of wizards that decides what is art and what is not. Well,
1: but I think here's one of the things about it, though, is like, are you using tricks and various bells and whistles of the medium Mm -hmm. to engage the audience? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think one of the important things to keep uh, in mind about about cinema, about filmmaking— is that a filmmaker benefits from a great number of tricks and effects to capture our attention and manipulate our feelings and these were these weren't just all rolled out at once mm-hmm. so it's not like edison or anybody else came along and said all right here's here's how you make a film here are all the techniques you can do. Here are the types of cuts, uh, et cetera. Like these were all developed mostly through trial and error, yeah. uh, over decades and decades of, of filmmaking. And that means the the work of um, you know highly acclaimed and serious filmmakers, uh, as well as, uh, as everybody else involved in the, the game of making films. This was uh, pointed out, by the way, in Psychocinematics: Issue and Directions by author P. Uh, Shimamura. So you know little changes here and there, new advancements in cinema that allow a film to get its hooks into us so ultimately i don't I don't think it you know matters if say the blob is a work of art mm-hmm. uh, but but clearly, it's using all of these various artistic tools that were created uh to better tell a story, to better engage a viewer through the medium of cinema,
0: yeah, and I would also say that I think you can. Make the uh, make the point that commercial cinema develops tex- techniques that are crucial to later art. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so I think maybe we should take a break, and then when we come back, we will discuss some of these early innovators in the art form of film. Shout
1: out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
0: Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray.
1: Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. All right, we're back.
0: Okay, so we've been asking this question throughout of how did film and motion picture transition from being just a technological curiosity, you know, a a, a new invention uh, and a spectacle into something that was more oriented around narrative and story and something that might be considered a legitimate art form. Uh, And so we want to talk about just a couple of important figures here. One that I think is definitely worth mentioning is uh, an interesting figure named Alice Guy Blachet. In the words of the American filmmaker and film scholar Wheeler Winston Dixon from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, she was, quote, the foremost pioneer of cinema, which I, I think is interesting because before preparing for this episode, I want to be honest, I had not heard of her.
1: Yeah, mo- and most of the names that come up are are, are men yeah. uh, from cinema
0: history. So it's refreshing uh, to see um, a, a woman playing such an important role early on. And I think it is Highly possible that her gender might have had something to do with the reasons she wasn't remembered as much as she probably should have been. So Alice Guy Blachet was born Alice Guy in France in 1873. She grew up going to Catholic school and she early on had a love of narrative literature and theater. She, you know, she was a fan of the arts and she began her career in 1894 as a secretary working for the engineer, inventor and industrialist Leon Gaumont. In the mid-1890s, Gaumont ran a photography company. So he made equipment and materials for this brand new film industry. For example, this company had a relationship producing equipment for the Lumiere brothers. And through her work with Gaumont's company, she was able to attend the Lumiere brothers' projected film premiere in 1895. We talked about this in the previous episode. Oh, yeah. So she she got to see The
1: Sprinkler Sprinkled
0: at the premiere. she was there.
1: And by, by the way, all of these old films we're talking about, these uh, these little short films, they are all available on YouTube.
0: Well, the Lumiere Brothers ones, I think, are. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah. But some of these others that we are discussing, like we've looked up on YouTube. So, uh-huh. so th- there's a YouTube for all of its crimes and sins. Uh, it's still <laughs> a great place to find uh, these little tidbits of cinematic history.
0: Yeah. Uh, oh, well, the ones that are available, yeah, you should definitely look mm-hmm. up and check out. Uh, a lot of them are actually lost Yo, to history. Yes. Yeah. The, the ones
1: that are lost, you're not going to find on YouTube, but, uh, but the other. Is fair game?
0: We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, so, so she, yeah. So she's working for Gaumont's company. She attends the Lumiere premiere, uh, and by 1896, it appears she'd gotten a bug. Even though she was still officially only a secretary at uh, Gomont's company, Guy had become interested in filmmaking as an art form and wanted to see what she could do crafting films herself. Now, remember, this is an age dominated by. Films that are less than one minute long, they're mostly like documentaries about people getting off a boat, you know. Yeah. So that year in 1896, Guy got Gaumont to let her use the company's equipment to direct her own feature, to direct a roughly one minute film of her own called the Cabbage Fairy, or uh, La Fée aux Chou on her lunch break. This is she made. So she made the movie at lunch, <laughs> and this film involves this beaming fairy woman in a gated garden pulling real babies out of giant heads of cabbage. It's pretty creepy. There is something <laughs> I think captivating about it. I mean, uh, it it's, uh, it doesn't have much of a plot, but I couldn't take my eyes off it. Yeah, I, I watched this as well. Again, this one's definitely on YouTube. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's
1: pretty captivating and kind of, um, Predicts the popularity of Cabbage Patch Kids later on.
0: Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. Uh, so this is sometimes cited as the first fictional film. I do think that's debatable because why doesn't the sprinkler sprinkled from 1895 count? I, think I mean, it doesn't. That doesn't contain a speculative element, right? Whereas, that's true. Whereas you know, babies coming out of cabbage—that's clearly speculative. That is exactly what I was about to say. Whatever uh, one comes down to on that question, whether it's the first fictional film, it did occur to me is this the first ever fantasy film? It's possible I'm missing something, but I can't find an earlier example. Uh, And the films you see most often cited as the earliest fantasy films are films by a a filmmaker we're about to talk about named uh, George Melies from like 1902. So this is much earlier than that. And unless somebody can provide a counterexample, I'm going to say that this is the first fantasy film ever made, The Cabbage Fairy.
1: Now, what was the date on Edison's um, uh, Frankenstein adaptation?
0: Oh, nineteen ten. All right, right. so she w- still beat him way to the park. after. Yeah, okay. that, that, that's way after Millier's. Though that is worth a look. It's, oh yes, especially, especially <laughs> crazy looking Frankenstein monster there. <laughs> especially given what you know about Edison. Yeah, it's <laughs> almost like a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> Um, But so anyway, Alice Gee, The Cabbage Fairy, based on her success in directing The Cabbage Fairy, Gee went on to direct and produce more films and she was eventually made the head of production when Gaumont's company transitioned from being a technical camera and equipment business into a full-fledged film studio. And it's interesting how you see this transition happening over and over again with like with Edison, with Lumiere, with uh, Gaumont, you know, like people get into the film business and then they're like, "I, I don't want to be just on the technical side I want to be making movies mm. So Guy directed hundreds of films and she oversaw the production of hundreds more. Perhaps her most famous film and uh, the the best remembered one is one from 1906 called The Life of Christ. Of course, it is a silent retelling of The Life of Jesus. It's a little over 30 minutes long and I watched some scenes from it. For example, the scene where Mary Magdalene watches The Feet of Christ and I watched the crucifixion scene. And it's a beautiful film in many ways. Like the sets and the costumes and the staging are wonderful for 1906. In 1907, she married a Gaumont camera operator named uh, Herbert Blaché, and she became Alice Guy Blaché. And after that, the two of them traveled to the United States where Alice founded a new film production company of her own in New York called the Solax Company. And uh, so Guy Blaché was prolific. Over the course of her career, she wrote, directed, and produced more than a 1,000 movies. Wow. Sometimes like three movies a week. <laughs> uh, the last movie she made was in 1920. She died in New Jersey in 1968. Unfortunately, most of her films, like many films of this era, have been lost. So we can't go back now and watch them. Uh, for a long time, it seems Guy Blaché was left out of many film histories, like we were talking about. So there'd be histories of the period that just didn't really mention her, though some did. I want to say that uh, there have been some people on uh, I've read saying that she was like completely forgotten until recent years. and I, th- That's not entirely true, but it does seem that her role in the history of film has been grossly underemphasized. And it does seem now there's sort of a revival in attention to her story in the past few years, including I was looking, there was a a, a documentary film about her that came out in 2018 called Be Natural, narrated by Jodie Foster. And I haven't seen the movie, but I like the title because uh, I think the title comes from another thing I've read about her, which is that in her studio, she hung up a sign urging actors to be natural, (laughs) which is kind of hilarious if you think about the other staged films from this time, such as those of The Great George. Méliès with all these wild, exaggerated gestures and movements in them, you know,
1: which, I mean, which really I think w- was a benefit to those films because yeah. I mean you're dealing with you're so far you're far removed from a, from capturing a natural performance. Yeah,
0: there's no sound.
1: Right, there's no sound. So yeah, like scream and contort your face mm-hmm. as much as possible because you're you you really almost have to shout through the limitations of the medium.
0: Yeah. Uh, So to quote again from uh, Wheeler Winston Dixon, the scholar who called her the foremost pioneer of cinema, uh, Dixon also argues, quote, she's basically the first person to make a film with a plot, the first person to use color. And this wasn't color photography. This would mean hand-tinted films. Uh, and also the first person to use the chronophone process, which was an early sound-on-film method that, like the other one we mentioned earlier, it, it did not commercially take off for a while. Again, sound-on-film didn't become mainstream until the late 1920s.
1: Yeah, but she's uh, she's looking ahead, though. She kind of sees the yeah. future. And ultimately, the whole idea of asking the actors to be natural, I mean, that's the same thing. Yeah. Like nowadays, um, in – well, a lot of movies, uh, certainly in your more um, you know serious, dramatic pieces – like, that's where the focus is. You want to capture all the emotional nuance of a performance. And she saw that when others did not.
0: Yeah, these early films were very – well, again, they were still – it was still the spirit of spectacle in a way. Mm-hmm. They were very stagey, you know, these yeah. huge motions uh, not to capture any kind of nuance of the characters but but more in the spirit of vaudeville. Exaggerated right. motions to uh, to really draw the eye and engage people and and not ask them to, to like very boldly telegraph everything. Thing, to avoid subtlety,
1: right? Because the, the another thing to keep in mind is that the medium is ultimately going to change uh, the way that you can uh, you can bring an actor's performance alive. Like it's going to make those really close, tense, studied scenes of a, an actress' facial expressions possible in ways that a, a stage production
0: w- never would. Yeah, and these these earlier films were generally more like stage productions. They, I mean, they usually didn't have things like close-ups, right? Now, I think maybe we should take another break, and then when we come back, we will discuss another better-known but also genuinely amazing and influential early film pioneer. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw The Potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love—
2: Live on NFL Network, ESPN2 and streaming on NFL Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL Plus. Visit NFL.com slash schedule release to learn more.
0: Alright, we're back. So let's let's go to the moon. Oh, I think we should. Uh, So one of the most important people in the transition from film as straightforward recording of documentary spectacle to longer narrative form is Georges Méliès, who lived 1861 to 1938. And uh, even if you don't know much about early film history, you are probably still a little bit familiar with Méliès through his 1902 film Le Voyage dans la Lune, or A Trip to the Moon, uh, in which some learned astronomers dressed like goobery wizards... <laughs> Fly to the moon in a giant artillery shell. They land there. They meet some moon men. They smash them with umbrellas and make them explode. They capture a, a moon being uh, and then they travel back home. Yeah, that's the plot. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and yeah, I think everyone out there, either you have seen this in its entirety, then you have seen allusions to it, right? Or you've seen – didn't the, the Smashing Pumpkins I think had a music video. Yeah. That uh, – that they, they utilize a lot of the, the visuals from the, this
0: picture. Well, the most famous image from it is something you've probably seen. It's the one where the ship lands on the moon, and there's a close-up of the moon, which has a human face. <laughs> right. And the, the so the, there are special effects that do a, do a cut to make the ship smash into the face, and then the face looks very displeased. Right. And so a trip to the moon is just still excellent to watch today. Yeah, it's just really kind of wackadoodle to uh-huh. watch
1: because it's it's not quite. It's certainly not a film to play, but there is this sense of it's kind of like a film a film spectacle. Like yeah. there are these these scenes on but uh, that you're presented with where you're just there's there's something phantasmagoric about it.
0: Oh yeah, uh, and only 13 minutes long. Yeah, v- very short time. You're investment. in and out. It's like it's really the perfect film for today's attention span. <laughs> And it wasn't Melies' only film, of course. I mean, he made all kinds of stuff. Uh, he was another great pioneer in early film production. And I, I like that you say that it does incorporate more of that tradition of spectacle uh, because th- there are some things about him that I think will explain that. Now, like Guy Blaché, he was one of the first to see the storytelling potential of film as a medium. Uh, in the mid-1890s, Melies was a stage magician and uh. a theater director in Paris. And also, like Guy Blaché, he was present for the earliest demonstrations of the Lumiere brothers. So when they're showing this thing on the wall, the Lumiere brothers mm-hmm. are like, check out our cinematograph. And multiple members of the, of the audience are like, I can do this. I can make a career out yeah. of this. Or,
1: or he's probably thinking, I could do better. You're just filming people leaving a factory uh-huh. I could build you a set yeah I could perform you uh, for you an
0: illusion I can make you a cabbage fairy yeah. you know I can take you to the moon yeah And so, yeah, so when Melies saw uh, what the Lumiere's camera and projector could do, he pretty much immediately imagined the potential of the medium. He acquired a camera of his own. He founded a film studio, which I've seen described as like a giant glass house to let in as much light as possible for filming. And he started making movies. And Melies, in a way, brought the spirit of a stage magician to the technology of the movie camera. He employed Trickery, and that is one thing that he really uh, revolutionized about early film. He he pioneered many kinds of editing techniques and in-camera special effects that are inspired by the tricks that stage magicians would use.
1: Yeah, the trickery is so uh, essential to the filmmaking process. We 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 lose sight of it. Mm-hmm. Like I I really had I I lose sight of that aspect until I'm find myself explaining. Uh, films to my son, who Um. asked, like, how did they do that? How did this... You know, how the Skeksis uh, disappear in the scene, uh-huh. or, you know, how did this happen? How did that this special effect occur? And then I have to stop and break it down a little bit and like, well, it's 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 a trick. Uh, they they stop filming and then they move things around and then they start filming, uh, you know, explanations of that manner. But yeah, they are all essentially based in tricking the audience into thinking something happened that didn't
0: happen. well, I'm sorry I've forgotten the source on this because i, I this is a story I remember from years ago, but I think there is a story that Meliers told that, you know, the, he discovered the possibilities of for special effects when one day like he was filming something and then he just stopped while he was fi- – and then he started filming again. And then when he watched it played back, there was a jump cut and mm-hmm. he – you know, that was like, oh, oh, I can just transition from one thing immediately to another if I stop working the camera and then start it up with something different in place. And it's like magic. It's like something disappears and appears somewhere else. Right. That's so obvious to us now who, you know, we're familiar with movie special effects. It's hard for us to appreciate how revolutionary of an insight that was. Right. And it would make sense that a magician would see it, like whose whose trade
1: depends on misdirection – And, uh, you know, and and also playing with expectations.
0: Yeah, and so Melies was the first great special effects wizard. He used all kinds of tricks. He pioneered uh, double exposures, you know, where you would run the film through the camera twice. And the second time, it would also pick up a trace of an image. One would be... Uh, like would come through stronger on the film than the other. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you could do all kinds of interesting special effects like that. Uh, He used jump cut editing like we were just talking about. And his movies are generally still pretty wonderful to behold. There was a 1901 film he did called The Man with the Rubber Head that I watched earlier today. And (laughs) in this film, Melies uses special effects to make duplicates of his own severed head, which he then inflates with a furnace pump until it explodes. (laughs)
1: And I believe from reading about uh, his films, he also put an emphasis on music. Yes, Uh, like having like like like, having some form of live music present to fully bring the production alive.
0: But this was still the silent film era, so there was no sound on film. The film would not have a dedicated. Soundtrack that went along with it, unless like you know you had like a score written out and had to say okay, give this to the piano player in the theater or something. Right. Or in some cases, I believe there would be like recommendations, like here here's a song you can play for this particular p
1: this particular short film.
0: Uh huh. And so the case of a, a trip to the moon makes me think about an interesting modern phenomenon with early film, which is this thing I've encountered several times of rescoring old silent films or films that were made with older soundtracks by modern musicians. And I really am interested in this phenomenon and I like it. I want more bands to create, you know, a track synchronized to a voyage to the moon.
1: Yeah, not enough of them uh, do it. Um of course uh, Air uh did a soundtrack to uh, Voyage to the Moon uh 2012's uh, Le Voyage dans la Luna, mm-hmm. uh which uh I I remember when it came out and because uh, I cause I love Air, Air a terrific act. Um and I remember liking it at the time. I haven't listened to it a lot. Oh, okay. I haven't heard it. It's good. Um that that being said, I have not listened to the album synced with the the,
0: the 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 movie itself. Uh, I see. Uh, I know people have done this with – in fact, I've watched more than one uh, modern rescoring of Metropolis, the Fritz Lang uh, yes. movie. Which is, of course, you know, it, it doesn't have its own sound and it's this – but it, it's different because it's like a long uh, science fiction feature. Yeah, from, it is a full full feature. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, uh, Marauder,
1: uh, uh, the, the the French electronic artist. Uh, oh, Giorgio the score, Marauder, yeah. 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 Uh, which – I, I I remember, like, getting into it. I was like, all right, I'm going to watch Metropolis. Mm-hmm. I'm going to use this score. And I really wanted to like it more than I did. Oh. <laughs> so I ended up just playing a bunch of Kraftwerk over it uh. instead of anything that would, had been, you know, that was a dedicated composition for Metropolis. Uh. And I have to say Kraftwerk worked, worked uh, really well.
0: I think Autobahn did a good one, too. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> um, but various folks have covered Metropolis over the years. Uh, I, I found one that was really interesting by um, a group uh, called the New Pollutants. And uh, they did a, a pretty cool rescore of it. That's uh, as of this recording fully available on YouTube. It's from like 2010.
0: I think I may have actually watched it with this soundtrack before. I've yeah. watched it with multiple soundtracks.
1: Another one that comes to mind that you you brought this one up, uh, Dracula. Oh which, yeah, which was not a silent film. No, but it has been rescored. Yeah, uh, this one was by Philip Glass, and uh, the, the most famous performance was by the Kronos Quartet. Uh huh. And then uh, some other silent films that have been rescored many times include The Passion of Joan of Arc from 1928 and, of course, 1920s The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Mm -hmm. And I think that that one...
0: That, great creepy film. Yeah, great
1: creepy film with some wonderful, like, you know, surreal uh,
0: uh, uh, German sets. Yeah, the German expressionist period. So yeah. the sets are not designed to be realistic. You know, they, they 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 are all these bizarre, sharp angles. I remember a scene, maybe I'm imagining this, I remember a scene where somebody sits on a stool. It's just way too tall to be a stool. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I would love to see more of this uh, sort of exercise with films. Yeah. So if you're an electronic artist or any kind of musician out there and and you like these old films as well, score some George Méliès. Yes. And then tell us about it and we we will promote it on the show. Or score some Alice Guy Blaché. That would be
1: cool too. Yeah. But well, that's probably going to be just like part of a track, right? For most of those.
0: Well, for the early ones, it will. I mean, mm-hmm. like, so the Cabbage Fairy is less than a minute long, but of course, along her career, films got longer, and the films she made got longer. Right, but I could see that could also be a worthwhile experiment. Like, what can you do
1: with a really short film? Mm-hmm. Like, what you know, what can you apply to it musically to really bring it to life, especially for modern viewers. All right. So, uh, we've talked a little bit about, you know, how, just how effective films are in manipulating our cognitive functions because, because yeah. that's ultimately the thing about it, right? When you watch a, a, certainly a great film or even a good film or even a bad film that has something <laughs> captivating about it, like it is captivating. It mm-hmm. takes over your mind. It takes over your thought processes. Like it, it becomes your new site. It, uh, it, it becomes reality for your brain.
0: Well, yeah, we have the expression that you can become lost in a film or lost mm-hmm. in a narrative. And, of course, that's a metaphor. But to some degree, it's kind of a little bit literally correct. I mean, at least in the mental sense that uh, – it. You, There's often while you're watching a film some degree of distance where you're sort of going in and out of of being there with the characters and then having a a thought that's disconnected. But there are times when you just disappear – you just become the narrative. You just become a part of it. Your whole consciousness is the character within the narrative. And films do this in a way that I think uh, it's even more seamless and it's easier for it to happen with films than it is with something that qu- that requires more cognitive effort, like uh, like reading a text narrative.
1: Yeah. I mean, well, also the, the film, a really good film, uh, certainly a modern film, is going to employ music. It's going to employ yeah. visuals. It's, you know, it, it's really... Using our most powerful senses and, uh, and 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 changing the way you know the way we're viewing the world at least for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. So I was looking into this a little bit, and uh, I was reading uh, the science of cinematic uh, perception on the Oscars website. The, the, huh. the, yeah, the Oscars website has a wonderful. Um, Overview of a series of of lectures that
0: they uh, that, that they hosted. Oh, I and didn't they, even know they did features and stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. And this one was a pretty cool. And this one this one, um, uh, this one involved a, a series. Like basically, you had professional uh, researchers in uh, in film and cognition, and then they were paired on stage with various directors and filmmakers and sort of film world experts, mm-hmm. and they talked about, uh, you know, what, what the evidence, uh, you know, said about the, the psychological, the, the neurological effects of film. Um, for instance, in, uh, the, some of the uh, the lectures included Tim J. Smith, a senior lecturer in psychological sciences at uh, Birkbeck, uh, University of London, who specializes in the study of visual cognition, as well as uh, Uri Hassan, oh, a, yeah. an associate uh, professor of psychology and neurosciences at Princeton University who used fMRI to look at how we view films.
0: We've talked about Uri Hassan before on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. I think we discussed him in part two of our episode about uh, about against narratives. Yeah.
1: So Hassan, for instance, uh, they pointed out, observed that showing uh, uh, the movie Dog Day Afternoon from 1975 uh, engaged 63 to 73 percent of a viewer's brain.
0: Well, that's a good one to use. Dog Day Afternoon will engage 73 percent of my entire body. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very well-made movie with you know with great pacing to it. Uh-huh. Uh, but, but yeah, it just shows like how – you know how well it captivates us. Uh, you know some other things that came up um, in this in this article and in these lectures uh, that there's some connection between blinks and cuts, and between our blinks and a character's blinks. Uh, James Cutting, uh, chair of the department of psychology at Cornell University, has tracked the downward trajectory in average shot duration. Uh, which uh, he says has been, quote, consistent and uninterrupted since the silent era.
0: Oh, yeah. So films used to have longer uninterrupted shots. You just have the camera trained on something without cutting away and the the cuts are getting faster and faster. Right, on a whole. Now you still
1: find plenty of, you know, smaller films, art art films especially, that will really go for those long, uh, uh, drawn-out scenes. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, yeah, everything gets flashier and
0: flashier. I mean, if you've seen like a battle scene in Game of Thrones, you'll you'll know what we're talking about, right?
1: Yeah, or heck, I, I feel like I, everything's more laid back there. If you watch something like a Transformers movie <laughs> or a modern Teenage yeah. Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, it's like I don't even know what's happening. It's just it's just a million things happening a second.
0: It's just bombarding the eyes and the brain. Yes, <laughs> constant changes.
1: Um, uh, s- some more findings this one uh, according to Jeffrey M. Zachs, a s- uh, psychologist and neuroscientist found that scenes from the film's stepmom Sophie's Choice and oddly enough The Ring 2 The Ring 2 I don't know right. why The Ring 2 and not, I mean The Ring the first Ring the first American Ring film uh-huh. is terrific and probably one of my favorite horror films uh-huh. second one uh, <laughs> is a sequel to a great film
0: the second one takes everything that's scary in the first one and makes it funny so, I don't know, that's sort of interesting. I remember I
1: mainly just remember it being kind of boring and uh, at times wet like there's a lot of water in it or yeah, something. Yeah,
0: it's pretty wet, I mean. <laughs> but but anyway, the It's in, got that it's got that creepy girl scampering like a cockroach all over the place. Yeah. Well, that in and of itself is good, I guess. But at any rate,
1: Scenes from these films were shown to individuals in fMRI and it was found to produce, quote, complex responses deep within the brain and generated activity beyond normal cognitive levels. So as much as we might harp on The Ring 2, the, the idea is that when you're watching it, it can engage your mind more than most things <laughs> in life. Oh, I believe that, yeah. yeah. And then uh, another one. This well, was... no,
0: wait, I mean, we are – Profoundly familiar with having deep thoughts about bad movies. And oh, we yeah, we talk about yeah. this all the time. Absolutely, yeah. I, I'm probably. I feel
1: like I'm more engaged with a with a good bad film. Than with a, <laughs> the, uh, you know, it's uh, part of it is like, is the movie doing the thinking for me, or mm-hmm. am I left to do the thinking? And sometimes it's the latter example that produces the most brain activity. I think you're right about that. Uh and then uh, and one more bit from this uh from this article and this uh this lecture series. Talma Hindler, founder and director of the Functional Brain Center at Tel Aviv uh, Sorovsky Medical Center has found that certain scenes from Black Swan, this is of course the surreal kind of horror movie about ballerinas. Uh-huh.
0: Is it Darren Aronofsky? Yeah, it's an Aronofsky okay, yeah. film. Starring uh, um, Natalie Portman, right? Yeah,
1: kind of a, it, kind of a Suspiria uh, feel to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, the Hindler uh, found uh, that uh, watching certain scenes from this uh, uh, would produce quote results that Hindler compared to a schizophrenia like state, with the cognitive and emotional centers of the brain operating dramatically in and out of sync.
0: Well, that's kind of interesting. I mean. So one thing I think we could say from this that movies do is in a way they produce a slightly altered state of consciousness. Yeah. Which also, of course, some drugs do. I mean there's a whole thing about like people taking psychoactive or psychogenic drugs – to produce some effects that somewhat mirror aspects of psychosis. In many cases people, you know, like intentionally do things to their brains that they wouldn't want to be like stuck with or unable to turn off, but mm-hmm. like they'll experiment with them in a in a controlled setting and in, and I wonder if visual storytelling like film can also be considered a form of that. Yeah.
1: I mean, yeah, I think you think of like for instance just really interesting examples of psychedelic cinema you know Mm -hmm. now some examples of psychedelic cinema are just you know bad movies trying to cash in on whatever the psychedelic craze was at the time certainly Mm -hmm. like in the 60s or you know or or even in the 70s but but then you have those examples where they're really like playing with your perceptions of reality in a way that feels more authentic and is ultimately more upsetting Mm -hmm. um and, and and you can you know point to various uh uh, examples of this. I mean, even 2001 A Space Odyssey. You know oh, yeah. I mean, that That's a film that really kind of messes with your perception of, of reality, not in terms of like thinking about the nature of reality, but just
0: like purely it, the way that you're experiencing the film. One of my favorites, definitely. Okay. And if you'd like to hear Robert and I talk more about 2001 A Space Odyssey, we have a whole episode of stuff to blow your mind about it. You can go look up.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I want to come back just briefly, though, to, you know, we were talking earlier about how all the, the tools of, of filmmaking were not developed at once, so they were mm-hmm. developed gradually over time. Uh, I wanted to just run through one quick example of this, and that, uh, for that I want to talk about the jump scare. Oh, boy. So, uh, <laughs> One of the best. Joe, Joe, describe a good jump scare to, to our listeners in case they're not familiar.
0: Okay. So a little bit of uh, tension building goes on. This is usually aided by a character being al- – I mean it can be anything, but I'll, I'll paint one for you. A character okay. is left alone in a horror movie. Nothing all that dangerous has happened in a while, so the audience's guard is up. They think maybe something's about to happen. A character is alone in a house wandering around asking, is anybody there? Hello? Hello? the music is not in full force maybe it's tinkling a little bit on mm-hmm. the you know and then the character opens the closet and a cat jumps out ah not only a jump scare but a cat scare the yes. cat scare is the classic jump yes. scare because uh, it's, it's something suddenly happens there's a blast of music something flies at the camera and ah uh, and then oh it was just a cat. just a cat so i mean it's it's wonderful
1: because that we've talked about on um, on some of our shows before that that when you're scared in a film, and then that 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 scare is deflated, like mm-hmm. you realize it's not a threat after all. Like that is that that is one of the the pivotal um, you know emotional roller coaster experiences that you have in watching a film. Yeah, but but when we look at the history of the jump scare, uh, I, I was looking around, and it seems like the first jump scare that we really have. Was probably the Luton bus scene in *Cat People* from 1942.
0: Okay, describe this. Okay,
1: so this is just very similar to what you just described, actually. <laughs> oh, except uh, I didn't mean to. No, 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 not okay. completely. But basically, you have a, a, a female character walking down this this superbly uh, darkly lit street. Like mm-hmm. the use of shadows in this movie is, is phenomenal, especially for the time. And uh, and you're just getting a little more tense, a little more tense, and then a bus pulls up, and it just scares the hell out of you. Uh-huh. Uh, like I, I watched it on YouTube; you can kind of find the scene isolated on YouTube. I watched it before I came in here, and it got me. It it it, it legitimately gave me a fright, uh, even though it's just a bus. It doesn't hit her or anything. It just comes out of nowhere and is a surprise. And then she, you know, it, she boards it or whatever.
0: Just sudden and
1: loud. Yeah, and it's a it's a famous scene for this purpose, but. Uh, after this film, you see other jump scares sprinkled across the decades uh, that follow. But jump scare mania doesn't really kick into the 1980s. It's almost as if it's not till the 80s that you have enough filmmakers uh, who realize? Oh, this is this is some potent magic. Let's let's just overuse the hell out of this. Yeah.
0: and then of course it becomes a cliche, and then becomes a hated cliche. Right? Can I tell you one of my favorite examples of the, the hated cliche jump scare? Okay. It's the mirror scare. Oh, yes. How many movies is this in? Some horror directors picked up on it. I think sometime in the like 90s to 2000s, they're like, Oh, wouldn't it be great to have something suddenly appear behind somebody in a mirror? Right. Or, so, or of course
1: they the or it's the, the, the medical cabinet
0: mirror. Exactly, right? yeah, the medicine cabinet mirror. Uh, if somebody looks inside the medicine cabinet, if you... You're in a horror movie. Somebody looks inside, sees what pills are in there or whatever, and then they close the medicine cabinet. You got a 99 percent chance that when it closes, there's something creepy in the mirror. Either the person's face looking back at them isn't really their face and it's all distorted and scary or there's somebody looking at them over their shoulder or something like that. And then you throw in a nice boom, yeah. kind of a
1: sound effect <laughs> and and just to
0: drive it home. Yeah.
1: I mean, at the same time, if we we start really thinking, you know, there are these other sort of counter examples of jump scares done really well. Mm-hmm. I mean, Alfred Hitchcock used jump scares. Um, uh, I've, uh, John Carpenter has some really nice jump scares that sh- show up a time or two, such as Prince of Darkness. It has a wonderful jump scare with a mirror that kind of plays with, oh, uh, with, yeah. the, with the
0: format a bit. Uh, but, oh, man, I love <laughs> Prince of Darkness. <laughs> oh, that's, that's a fun one. It's an unpopular opinion. That's... That's in my top three John Carpenter movies.
2: Oh. Yeah.
1: But, uh, but, but again, yeah, the jump scare is just one of so many uh, examples of cinematic techniques, tricks. And it's, it's probably you know, ultimately more of like a, an, an obnoxious one to bring out because there's so many other tricks that we don't even think of as being tricks. Mm-hmm. We don't say – it's only because it's gotten to the point where it kind of irritates us at times that we mm-hmm. can even single it out. But every film we watch is just a nonstop barrage
0: of tricks. One of the things that bugs me the most about myself is when I catch myself using cliches. And mm-hmm. I know I use them all the time. Everybody does. Everybody talks in cliches. It's just it happens effortlessly, automatically. They just come out of you and you don't know where they came from. Right. Uh, and, and I try to cut them out. When I catch myself using a cliche in speech, I always kind of wince. And I'm like, Ugh, I'll try not to do that again. But it, there's no way to stop it. And in films, there are also, there, there are like visual cliches, like the mirror scare, but there's a zillion of them. You, know, they're, mm-hmm. they're, you see them, and you, they're invisible to you because they're so common, but they just pass right over you. You don't stop to notice how frequently you've been exposed to one.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's fool me once, shame on you. Uh, <laughs> fool me for three hours straight, uh, well, I guess it's my fault. But if I enjoyed the picture, I'm, I'm happy being fooled.
0: But I do think it's interesting that these like film cliches are not, – they're not just artistic laziness. A lot of them also come out of the the material realities of making a film. Right. Like uh, film cliches happen because of what filmmakers can do with the techniques they have and like what's cheap to do and that kind of thing. Yeah. The same way that uh, I think often – Verbal cliches come out of our mouths because we might suddenly find ourselves limited, to ha- uh, limited in vocabulary. Right. But to come back to the jump scare,
1: yes, it's overused in films uh, these days. But a good jump scare still works, and there's nothing like it for getting a, a viewer that's watching it by themselves on their iPhone at work mm-hmm. or an entire audience, uh, an entire theater's audience. Uh, they're watching it together. And so, I mean, you, you
0: know, might say it's good as gold.
1: Yeah, right? I mean, you're, it's almost <laughs> foolish to resist at least one good jump scare. I'm not saying you know back to back, but you kind of you kind of got to put one in there. I feel.
0: Mm-hmm. Look, I don't begrudge a horror, a horror filmmaker one or two good jump scares. You just can't build a whole film out of them.
1: Well, that's what we say, but I think the, the box office uh, probably probably
0: says otherwise. And I would say also if you're a horror filmmaker and you want to put a cat scare in your film, don't. Make it an orangutan scare. <laughs> Instead, just have an orangutan jump out of the closet.
1: And then, like, scamper down the hallway yeah. and have it never addressed again in the exactly. rest of the Exactly. That's right.
0: I, I like that. Okay, I guess this must this must mean we're done. <laughs>
1: I think so, yeah. So— yeah we have not we've not given you an exhaustive history of um, of, of cinema here that was no, of course intent, but we've uh, but hopefully we've given you like a grounding in where the motion picture came from how it emerges from these other uh, visual technological um, uh, traditions that came before it and and a sense of just why it is so pervasive why it is so potent and why we we continue to worship at the theater
0: do you have? early favorite films or uh, early favorite filmmakers that we didn't talk about in today's episode. If so, let us know. I, I want to hear what else is out there.
1: Absolutely. Your thoughts on jump scares, your thoughts on pairing uh, you know, new scores with old films. Uh, anything we discussed in here is fair game. In the meantime, if you want more episodes of Invention, well, you can find us uh, wherever you get your podcasts. We also have a, a website. It is inventionpod.com. You can go there and see... Uh, the various topics we've been discussing. As always, the best way to support the show is to
0: make sure you have subscribed to it and then rate and review it wherever you have the power to do so. Huge thanks to our friend Scott Benjamin for research assistance on this podcast. And thanks to our excellent audio producer, Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com.
2: Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. This is Amy Brown from 4 Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen.